Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, if you're into motorsport, you will love this one. John Bow comes on to speak about his early days as racing, into V8s, and now into the Masters. He also speaks about driving Mount Panorama as one of the best race tracks in Australia. Now let's go and have a listen to my chat with John. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. It's uh, someone that uh, has been around the motorsport for a long, long time. Uh, John Bow, mate, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, good on you, Hoppo. No problem, mate. Um, I have been around a long time, haven't I? Sometimes I I have to remind myself, pinch myself that I'm still around. <laughs> mate, you're uh, born in Tasmania, so how did you get into the race car driving? Uh, well, I grew up in a racing family. My dad, uh, you know, raced at a state level in Tassie, as uh, as a lot of people do. And, you know, I just always was around cars. And when I turned a teenager, I I don't know why I started racing. I think probably my, my dad encouraged me to race so I didn't, you know, become a hoon on the road, possibly. Uh, it's not something that I, you know, like thought about too much. It's not like I set myself goals or tasks or anything. I just sort of started doing it and and uh, here I am still doing it. So as, as of uh, my next race, whenever that may be, will be my 1,200th race, 1,200 races. So I've... I've been on eleven ninety nine for for three or four months since we've been in lockdown, so I feel like Don Bradman. You know, I'm just not quite there. Mate, that's an amazing record. Uh, but you'd be dying to get that that one race and and, and get to the, to the milestone. Well, I love racing. You know, I, I did it as a as a professional, which I was very fortunate to be able to do for quite a long time. And but I still love racing. So. You know, I, I love the camaraderie. I love the competition. I love the the fact that you you know you have to extend yourself to, to you know to try and do a decent job. So yeah, I mean, you know, with all this lockdown stuff, it's been quite frustrating. But I'm sure it's been worse for other people. You know, some people have really had a hard time of it. I mean, all I have done is not raced. So I'm I'm itching to get back at it. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, mate, going back to the beginning, what, what were the first type of cars you did race? I started racing in a, in a Formula V, you know, which is uh, sort of a you know a, a lowish cost category. Still exists, you know. My dad and I we studied it quite a bit. We talked to a lot of people. We looked at quite a few race cars to to buy, but 
it seemed that that was a really good learning category. You learn lots of racecraft in it, and you still do. And you, you know, it's very much about tactics and slipstreaming and thinking about you know where you're going to pop up <laughs> in the last lap. So. You know, looking back on it, it was a good good learning thing, you know, but at the time, I, you know, we just looked for something that wasn't going to cost a fortune and, uh, you know, we could just go racing. I mean, I, I, I did not have any ambition to race anywhere but in Tassie early in my life, but luckily I got opportunities by people that helped me, you know. So it's uh, as a young guy, you, all you want to do is just stand on the throttle, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> so you need people guiding you a bit. So the experience came by just getting out there and doing it. And when was the time that you thought, look, geez, I'm, I'm going to make this a full-time career? Was there a point in that early stages? Uh, no, not really. Um, we had a succession of cars. Like I had a, a – we had a quite a – a relationship with Elfin. Elfin was a locally built car in South Australia and the founder of Elfin, this is a long story, mate, we could be here for about 14 hours, but <laughs> the guy that was Elfin was was a bloke called Gary Cooper who, and he was the largest manufacturer of race cars in in Australia, in, in the Southern Hemisphere. And overall, over the period of Elfin's existence, I think he built two or 300 cars. So we had an Elfin Formula V, then I got an Elfin 600, which was a Formula Ford and so on. So we had a few Elfins and my dad used to talk to Gary regularly and Gary took a bit of an interest in me and I ended up with an Elfin Formula 3 car, which I did quite well and some guys from the mainland, that's what uh, Tasmanians call people from the mainland. <laughs> Some blokes from the mainland who were dominant in Formula 3 came over to Tassie to race and I, I flogged them, you know. So Gary was very interested in me then and he gave me opportunities, you know. So without Gary, unfortunately, Gary, he had a heart condition and he passed away when he was only quite young, 47. But without Gary as a mentor, I would never have raced outside Tassie. So he gave me an opportunity to race on the mainland and went from there. You know, I, I had people help me. They obviously noticed me because they thought that I, you know, could do it, I guess, I, or I had some ability to do it, but it wasn't. Nowadays, unless you've got a dad with a big checkbook, it's very hard to make the grade. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite an expensive sport, isn't it? Well, it, yeah, it is. Uh, but just to, you know, to get enough experience and get noticed... You know, no one's going to give you a chance as a rookie. So you've got to spend quite a lot of money to get there. Uh, you know, I was lucky, I guess, that, that Gary took an, an interest in me. And then later on, I I had other people that helped me. And, you know, eventually I ended up in a touring car because that's, you know, that's about where I started to think, you know, maybe I could, you know, do it as a professional. You know, I... I I was invited to drive for the factory Volvo team in 1986. So it was the Australian Touring Car Championship and I'd raced in open wheel cars all my life. And when I did this deal to drive for the Volvo factory team, it was a, a dealer funded, factory funded thing, operated out of uh, Calder Raceway by a guy called John Shepherd, who's a very accomplished team manager 
who used to run the Holden dealer team when Peter Brock raced Tiranas. Right. So anyway, he did the, he did this, to cut a long story short, he, he gives me this contract. I flew over to Melbourne and, 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 and uh, they actually paid me. And I thought, geez, how long has this been going on? This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is not bad. So it wasn't a lot of money, but it was being paid, you know. So, yes. so that was the start, I suppose, and I've been grafting my way ever since. And that was what, early 80s, was it? Mid eighties, eighty six, yeah, eighty six. Yeah. So, I've, I've, you know, I've been making a living out of motorsport since nineteen eighty six, I suppose. But I've been racing since mid seventies, so I've been racing a long time. So, out of all those years, and, and you did go to V 8s which we'll touch on on soon. What was the best car that you raced that, with the speed and and the way it was built? Is there a specific car that you think that? Or, or it's hard to, to tell which one's the best? No, well, it's a bit like, you know, I, I draw an analogy here. It's a bit like girlfriends, you know, the ones that give you less <laughs> aggro, <laughs> you know, are the ones you're most fond of. So the the cars that I had success in, you know, I look back fondly now, but, I mean, at the time, a race car was is just a race car. You know, you, you, you try and do your best with it, the ones you win races with. You know, you you have a bit of affection for. Yeah. So, in the mid '80s, as as I drove the the Volvo for the first year in '86, so my very first race was a third of the way into the season. They ran two cars: one for Robbie Francovic, who was a Kiwi, quite a you know good accomplished driver, and then they got a second car for me. And I, but in that interim period, I was driving a. a a Le Mans type sports car for a, a guy in Adelaide called Bernie Van Elsen and it was built by K&A Engineering who were really good race car builders in that era and I won every race I was ever in in it so you know I look at that and think wow well, that, that was so much fun because it's, a, it's always more fun winning than not winning and uh, yeah so I drove that at the same time as I did the Volvo and I did my first race at Adelaide Raceway, which no longer exists, but it's not used anymore, mm. a third of the way through the season, and I qualified in my first touring car race in on the front row, and my second touring car race was in Perth, and I qualified on pole. So I was sort of an overnight sensation after racing for about ten years. You know, <laughs> so, it's a bit of a, a bit ironic. And also the with the cars these days with the safety side of things you would have seen how much it's changed since the you started racing and to the cars with the safety now yeah the, the cars are much safer much stronger the circuits are too though the circuits are much the first year i went to bathurst i, I drove around I'd, I'd seen it on television obviously but the first year i raced there i drove around in a, in a road car uh, and I looked at all these things that you could hit, you know, like earth banks and barbed wire <laughs> fences and trees and, you know, I thought, my goodness, you know, this is serious. And, and, you know, the elevation of Bathurst is television doesn't show it to its full extent. So, yeah, it was uh, it's definitely improved over the years. I mean, you know, just the cars themselves now are, are, are so much safer. But it's still dangerous, you know. It'll never be 100% safe because that's what it is. You know, uh, Ernest Hemingway, I don't know whether you've heard this, he said there's only two 
real, real sports, motor racing and bullfighting. Right. How's that, eh? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Well, mate, talking about Bathurst, is that the pinnacle of a race car driver to do Bathurst? Uh, in Australia it is, yeah, yeah, for sure. The circuit is mega challenging. You know, I mean, I still race there, but in shorter races, I, I've done the, I think the Bathurst 1000, I competed in about 24 or five times. I've competed in the Bathurst 12 hour quite a number of times, the Bathurst 6 hour a number of times. You know, I've, I mean, I've done a lot of driving at Bathurst. Yeah. So from that one day that I drove around the track, thinking, my goodness, I mean, the safety of that track's improved dramatically as well, but it's still dangerous. Yeah. You know, it's never going to be 100% safe. Um, and, yeah, Bathurst, I, I, when you're doing it, when you're racing, especially at the, the professional level like supercars say, you just, it's just, a, a, it's probably the one race that you want to win and that you'd like to win. But, you know, I mean, I quite often say to people, if I competed, say, 24 times in the Bathurst 1000, I went home probably on Monday 18 times disappointed. So, you know, <laughs> so your, your expectation of yourself is much higher going there because you want to win it so badly. It's just like a grand final, I guess, if you're a, a football team. Yeah. And it's very much a team effort and it's become more and more technical over the years as it's changed, you know, changes came with safety cars, it came with tyres and track safety and strategies, you know. I mean, when I first raced there, there wasn't a computer to be seen. So, you know, and the guy used to stand, lick his finger and stand up on the fence and see which way the wind was blowing, you know. So <laughs> now it's uh, very, very scientific and they've got a lot of very clever people in the teams, as as Formula One has, you know. it's Motor racing's become very dependent on technical uh, stuff. So on the technical side, so do they know and they communicate to you while you're driving on the brakes, on the different thing of the car and how it's performing and tell you to, do you need to go a bit slower or faster or depending on the corners? Does is, is that come into play? Well, you go as fast as you can generally. You know, there's no saving the car or anything. If it breaks, it breaks. Uh, if it breaks, it wasn't good enough to start with but creeping in as I you know before I stopped supercar racing the engineering people had more and more input to you so you had a lot of data you had to get out of the car and go into a trailer and sit down with a couple of clever blokes and look at a lot of lines on a computer and you know get someone who'd never driven the car telling you how to drive it so you know it uh that's life, though. You know, the more people become clever, it's like this hookup thing we're doing. You know, it's not always simple. Does that make it di difficult, though, knowing that someone that that doesn't drive a car, but then telling you how you should drive the car, but you're the one that's actually experiencing it and knows the ins and outs? Well, you know, I, I don't like. And I certainly don't say life was better in the old days <laughs> because, you know, it sounds like you're an old tosser, but certainly it was simpler, put it that way. Right. Um, it's become very dependent. As I, I, I'm talking about supercars here because supercars is the professional category in Australia and uh, the Bathurst 1000 is the biggest event in Australia. So your success as a driver 
is in the hands to some degree of your engineer now, where mostly I drove, when I drove the cars, I was my own engineer. I would make the changes to the car considering what I thought it needed. Just at the end, the engineer started to creep into it a bit, you know, but now they're, if you've got an engineer that you don't get on with, and I know there's a few people in the field that don't get on with their engineers, your chances of success are not that great, you know, really. So it's become incredibly technical. And in a race like the Bathurst 1000, the strategy is so important. You know, it's count, count they count back from the, the finish line and they don't have to just calculate the fuel loads. They have to calculate the driver's time in the car, the, the tyre, how many tyres they've got left and when to put them on. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's like a minefield where when I was driving, you just got in the car and drove it as fast as you could. <laughs> mate, you did do Bathurst with uh, your good mate, Dick Johnson. What were those yeah. days like? Well, they, you know, they were great. I, I drove for Dick Johnson's team uh, for 11 years. So, you know, I was part of the family. We, we're still friends. When I left, I left because a guy was a good salesman and he talked me into it. Um, <laughs> you know, I looked back and thought perhaps I shouldn't have left, but that's life, you know, you make your choices. It was good fun. It was still quite technical. You know, high-level motorsport is quite technical. But, you know, I became part of their family. I mean, I had a sort of a suite in their house that I used to stay in and call it the bow suite you know it had its own bathroom <laughs> it was uh, it was good fun we had a lot of fun to be honest because we got on well together yeah you know it was a good time in my life no question we had ups and downs of course not not in our relationship it's funny because you know I'm, I'm often asked about it because you know Dick is there's certainly an iconic figure in motorsport in Australia but uh we never had an argument in 11 years of motor racing. And sometimes, you know, I, well, I mean, I crashed into him sometimes. Sometimes the car blew up. Maybe it was my fault, you know. I mean, never once did he say, hey, you're a dickhead, you know. <laughs> never once. So it was a pretty good relationship, to be honest. Looking back, for 11 years, it's, it was, a, you know, very fruitful. We won quite a lot of stuff, you know, Bathurst and championships and stuff like that. So... You could say it was a golden period, but I mean, I've had other good periods of my life as well. One thing you have to be as a racing driver with longevity is you've got to be very, very resilient to the ups and downs, you know, so you can be on top of the world one day and in the pits of despair the next, and that's just life, isn't it, you know, it, it, that sort of sport. Is there a, a time where there was a driver that was the toughest to beat or was very com competitive in your day? Um, yeah, I've had lots of them over the years in all all sorts of classes. You know, the good guys generally rise to the top, you know, the in whatever class you're in. And I've raced against literally dozens and dozens of very good drivers, you know. But there's if, if, if I have a respect, a, a huge respect I have for Jimmy Richards, I raced against for a very, very long time, up until the last couple of years almost, he's... He's been competing in touring car masters where I have as well. And when he was in touring cars and supercars, he was, you know, he was kind of the the guy you felt you'd done a good job if you beat him sort of thing. I raced against him in 
in Nations Cup, which was GT-type cars and GT production. Of you know, I, I don't know how many races I've done racing against him, but I had a lot of respect for him, still do, as, as, as a bloke as well. And, uh, you know, but all those guys are good at it, you know. I mean, they are good at it. I did a, uh, a Bathurst 12-hour in 2014 in a Ferrari with one of the drivers in the car, one of the co-drivers was um, Craig Lowndes. See, I'd raced against Craig Lowndes since when he was a boy. I always used to joke with him about I. Uh, he passed me in the last 20 laps of Bathurst 1000. Uh, I, I always say to him, like, I created your legend, mate, by letting you around the outside, you know, but it's not actually true. <laughs> uh, anyway, we had a terrific time because I'd never driven with him before and we are in the same car. We had a great time joking and laughing and we, we won the race. So you know, <laughs> it doesn't always have to be, you know, serious. Yeah. Mate, the, uh, the racetrack. So, now, you know, Bathurst you, you, is, is one that uh, stands out. Is there another track that you really enjoyed racing on? I, I don't mind any of the tracks we have in Australia. Some of them are a bit, you know, dinky, dinky toyish, uh, say, compared to Europe. Europe tracks and American tracks, to a large extent, are very uh, multifaceted, you know, having lots of different elevation changes and things. But Phillip Island is a, is a world-class track. But I've, I've got a soft spot for Sandown because when I first raced on the mainland, I raced at Sandown and I've always had a good time mostly at Sandown. We've had wins and failures there, but, you know, I think Sandown has a sense of history. It goes back a long time, you know, it goes back to the very early 60s when I was started as a boy of interest in motorsport. So I quite like Sandown. I think it's being threatened now by housing, which has happened to a lot of racetracks which shouldn't be allowed to happen I don't think but yeah that's um that's always sad when the you start losing some of the racetracks and iconic ones as well yeah well I mean in uh, Sydney you know we, we, we lost Oran Park which had a great sense of history and we lost Amaru which had a great sense of history you know so in places I both of those places I raced at so yeah it's a bit sad when the developers there's plenty of land around. I don't know why they have to take over racetracks. <laughs> somebody, somebody gets greedy, I imagine. Mate, I've noticed too the uh, fastest lap records, and you've got two that will never be broken. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, I think I had more than that. Um, I had an Amaru record, I think. I had an Adelaide International Raceway record, and I had a Surface Paradise record, and I might have had Oran Park. I can't remember. But, yeah, I had a few. And that, most of those were either in an open wheeler, of course, or that sports car, which was called the Vescander that, that I raced from South Australia. Uh, they, that was, you know, a great car. Like any car that you can win every race in is a fantastic <laughs> car. It was probably the unfair advantage, to be honest, but anyway. Mate, also the racing industry, and you would have been in the thick of it then, when, when the death of Peter Brock, that must have... You know, hit home pretty tough for, for all race drivers. Yes, it was. I mean, as a as a youngster, he was a you know a hero because he had a quite a long reign in the at the top of the sport. And then I raced against him, of course, in you know supercars, in touring cars as well. And then he raced a bit in Nations Cup, which was he he raced a Monaro, I raced a Ferrari, which is you know. 
using the two marks in the same sentence sounds funny, but it was it was an equalisation category Nations Cup, and they tried to juggle everything so everyone was equal, which is a bit like communism doesn't work. <laughs> and so yes, I you know I, I remember where I was when Elvis died, and I remember where I was and what I was doing when I got the news that Peter had crashed and been killed. So yeah, it was, and you know he he was quite safe driver like he, you you if you were racing against him you would certainly trust him you know he wouldn't do anything stupid which is not always the case so yeah it was a bit of a shock but those tarmac rally things they can be dangerous you know so uh probably why i've never done them i know it's not much of a body but it's the only one i've got but <laughs> <laughs> have you done you mentioned uh, about tracks overseas have you done much racing overseas uh, not a lot. I, in the eighties, I went to American raced at Long Beach, where we had a we didn't have a a good run at it. One of my friends, a guy called Joe Collegius, got some historic cars, and I've been with him a few times. We we raced at Laguna Seca in California. I've raced there about three three times. We went to Goodwood a few years ago and raced in the Goodwood Revival, which is you know a great sense of theatre. Everybody dresses up, as only the English could. They all dress up in period 50s clothing or, uh, you know, military uniforms <laughs> and they have all these amazing cars that are worth millions of dollars, uh, in some case, you know, 20 or 30 million. And it's fantastic. It really is. But, I mean, it wouldn't work anywhere else because the English have that way about them. But, uh, yeah, and I hope to do a bit more, to be honest. I'm hoping to go back to maybe Goodwood next year or the year after, go to America again. America's a different scene to to England in the historic world. It's uh, got a lot of beautiful cars, but they're not quite as serious, you know. They, they have a bit more fun than the English. The English are real serious. Yeah, so anyway, it's been good. It's a great experience and... I've been fortunate enough that, you know, Joe shares his cars with me. He's, he, uh, we went to, you know, if you watch Formula One last weekend, it's the Circuit of the Americas. It's it's in Texas, in Austin. Well, I think about three years ago, we went and raced there. So Joe took a little sports car that he's got from the 70s, a little rear engine sports car, and he also owned, he since sold it, a, a 70, 1974 Formula One car which I drove on that circuit of the Americas. So it was, you know, fantastic experience, a proper Formula One car, although an old one, on a proper Formula One circuit. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's like a living a, I've actually, when I talk about it, which I don't talk about it much, but talking to you about it, it makes me realise I've, I've lived a boy's dream, really, haven't I? You have, definitely. Uh, something that I think everyone listening out there will be going, oh, jeez, I wish I could drive those cars. And I've been in a few. Yeah. I've been um, a passenger in the V8 and had a few runs around the track. And it's, it was probably about five years ago. He's probably one of the top at the time, about five years ago. So it's definitely an eye-opener on how quick you hit the bends. And, you know, you, you, don't, yeah, think, yeah. you, you don't think the car's going to get around the bend, but it just hits it. And it's like someone... It's just holding the car and just picks it up and moves it around the, the corner. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot, you know. I mean, everybody drives a car, or most people do, and when you watch it coming coolly, um, when uh, you watch it on TV, it looked a bit easy, 
But when you're in the car, you realise, you know, like the braking forces, the the cornering forces, the the gear shifts, it's all very dramatic, isn't it, when you're there in, inside it, part of it. Yeah, so it's uh, it's different. A lot of people watch it on TV, they go, no, that doesn't look that hard, but it's not that easy either. Were there times during your career that you thought, you know, there were some dark times and times you thought, look, I'm, I, I might need to give this away or anything along those lines? Yeah, I did, mate, um, particularly towards the end when, like, I've been racing as I said, since I was 15, um, and and it was my, you know, as I became a, a, a professional, my livelihood as well, and when I decided to stop racing supercars, I became actually very depressed in the, you know, clinically depressed. So I was getting, uh, you know, psychology counselling and psych psychiatric help and you know it was really a very dark time like I to the point where I you know I, I might think my life was in danger as as uh, you know as a suicide victim so that was terrible 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 part of my life and, and and luckily I got through it by you know treatment and and by people coming to help me you know and keep me racing actually so that's how I ended up in other categories you know they uh, people that have become lifelong friends have helped, you know, helped me get through it. So yeah, it wasn't a wasn't as as easy time. I can tell you that. And and uh, with all the you know study I did on this sort of thing, I've become a bit of an expert at it. And um, you know the the job of a racing driver is to accumulate data for his brain, and I accumulated data for that. And uh, uh, it's not unusual for sporting people to go through those sort of hardships when they stop, you know, being at the top of their game, so to speak, or like, say, footballers, cricketers, whatever. So, yeah, I look back on it and think I was very fortunate in a, in, a, in a, quite a lot of ways. Of course, there would be other drivers that you know of. would probably all go this, through the same sort of thing, but some don't get through it as well as you have. Well, yeah, a lot of a lot of men, particularly, don't talk about it. Where I didn't mind talking about it, so I did talk about it. I and I became a bit of a pinup boy for depressed people for a while, you know, because I'd I'd actually got through it. I talked about it. I, you know, I've since people sometimes reach out to me about it, you know, that are suffering from it. So it's nice to be able to help somebody in some way because. The life of a racing driver, let me tell you, if you're trying to be a pro at it, is quite selfish. You know, you're you're very self-absorbed, and you do everything in your power to make yourself go well. So, you know, climb the ladder or win races or whatever. So, so sometimes you can help people, and and that that can be a nice thing, you know. Mates, you're uh, currently uh, tell us a little bit about now. You're you're still driving in the the Masters category? Yeah. yeah, I am, yes. Um, it's been a bit lean over the last 18 months because of the COVID. So last year I did uh, only one race meeting last in the whole of last year. So for somebody that's used to doing 15 or 20, it's it was di- difficult to, to deal with. Uh, this year we've done, in the Masters, is, is we've done three meetings uh, which is 12 races. We do four races per race meeting, 
for for uh, heats sort of they like heats uh, and we're, we're supposed to compete at the end of uh, November at Bathurst with you know almost every category in Australia is going to be on the thing so it'll be a week of basic speed events culminating in the Bathurst 1000 on the Sunday so well hopefully that's going to happen but there's still some a little doubt I mean the race meeting will happen but there's a little bit of doubt because people in South Australia and Queensland can't go back to their home state without quarantine so that's a, it's a, at the moment it's a moving target I'm absolutely desperately hoping that it happens because I want to go and race but it's not <coughs> set in concrete that's for sure but the Bathurst meeting will be set in concrete it's just whether our participation is part of it I don't know because there's not a driver in Australia that's raced at Bathurst that wouldn't name Bathurst as the favorite their favorite track it's just everybody's favorite track mate also uh, you were diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, that was a recent wasn't it yeah, yeah, this year. I've had a, you know, a bit of a year this year. I had, uh, I won my 100th Touring Car Masters race. I had uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer and went through the whole process, which is quite long and arduous. And I was all, uh, given an Order of Australia award. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's been a, a year of ups and downs, so to speak. But I, my uh, oncologist tells me that I'm going well, and I get I got to get a ch- another checkup in February. So I th- I think I never try and assume too much, but I think I dodged a bullet. Do you think uh, handling that when you're talking about the when you finish your race career at that stage and and you had some tough times, did you think learning from that experience and then and then getting diagnosed with the cancer actually helped a bit mentally? I. Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I the cancer was, you know, I mean, I didn't even believe it. I mean, I had no symptoms. So uh, the I've been preaching this for the last six months. It's very easy for a bloke, anybody over 40, you go to your doctor and you get a blood test taken and they do a thing called a PSA and it shows, you know, your prostate condition. So I, I had my competition license, Motorsport Australia Medical, and I always said, say to my doctor, I, I get this test done every two years. So I said to my doctor, just check my bloods, make sure I don't need a service, you know, or whatever. And so he sends the blood test away and checks on your, you know, cholesterol and, and all sorts of things, including your prostate. So the, the level came back elevated. So he sent me again to have another one just to check and it was elevated again. So then you go through a process of, of tests, uh, which is, you know, ultrasounds, MRIs, PET scans, uh, you know, physical uh, examinations and all sorts of things. And, and and I still didn't believe I had it. Yeah. Still, still didn't believe. I just thought, oh, this is bullshit, you know. But, uh, but I did. So then you go through the process of, of uh, what are you going to do about it? There's various treatments, depending on the level it is and how long they think you've had it, and whether it the the cancer actually gets out of your prostate into other bits of you. And I chose to to do this process called brachytherapy, where if I can simplify it, they they have these steel rods with really high level of radiate, 
radiation on the end of them, and they stick them into your prostate. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and they never tell you. They go, oh, yeah, you'll be right after a couple of days. Like, you feel like you've been hit by a 747 <laughs> afterwards. So, yeah, so you've got to, you know, recover from that, and then you do some more radiation. So I had to have radiation for six weeks every day, every weekday. So I'd get up, go to the Peter McCallum Clinic, which is amazing, amazing people. And, uh, you know, you get zapped with radioactive treatment. So it takes the the energy out of you. I still haven't got the level of energy that I used to have, I think, probably, but I'm, I'm not bad. But I kept racing through all that. So that was the good part. Mate, so you're – what would you suggest for everybody? Everybody, it's a great message that – even that you didn't have any symptoms, but so everybody should really be getting a, a blood test and checked regularly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just a PSA check. It's, it only takes five minutes. You get a result within a few days, and if it's if if your uh, your PSA levels higher, then you've got to do something. You've got to get more checks done. It doesn't necessarily mean you've got prostate cancer, but it's a fair indication that you have, and 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 it's. I mean, prostate cancer can kill you. There's a, a, a guy I knew, a, a friend, a brother of a friend of mine, and he just passed away the other day with prostate cancer, but they didn't get it early. If you get it early detection, basically saves your life. So, yes, any, anybody, any bloke over 40, get a PSA check. It's easy as easy as easy because if you ignore it, it, it definitely you... you you die. No, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's no ifs or buts, so you've got to do it. And um, the treatment's not that bad. It's not fantastic, but it's not that bad. If it saves your life, it's worth it, isn't it? Oh, mate, that's right, 100%. Well, mate, uh, thanks for telling your story. But at the end of the interviews, I, I do a, a little segment called Five Fun Facts. So I'm just going to throw yeah. some uh, five questions at you. You can answer them however you want. There's no wrong or right. It's... Uh, just a, a, a okay. bit of fun, mate. So uh, here okay. we go. What are the worst and best purchases you have ever made? Uh, about 15 years ago, I was in Western Australia um, racing and I used to be able to borrow a car from the local Jaguar dealer called Alf Barbagello, Barbagello Motors. Alf was a prominent racing person from WA and they had an E-type Jaguar on their showroom. It was only for display, but every year I tried to talk them into selling it to me and eventually they did. So 15 years ago I bought it and uh, it's probably quadrupled in value. So that's one of the, that's the best thing (laughs) I ever bought probably. And the worst purchase, I've done plenty of those. I, I can't think of one that's, that shines above the others. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. So it'll be in the car world yeah. somewhere. <laughs> some car, some, some car that probably uh, depreciated faster than I could count back. Uh, my favourite childhood memory. Favourite childhood memories were, were was going to race meetings with my family, my dad and and my mum and my brothers. We all used to trudge off, you know. Dad had a little uh, a little racing car, and we had a trailer and. Before speed limits, he'd be whatever the car would do, she'd be doing, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour <laughs> with, a, with a trailer on the back. And we used to have a great time. You know, we, my brothers and I would, would collect uh, 
cordial bottles when they were worth, you know, five cents or whatever they were worth. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that was my childhood was just all about cars and stuff like that. You know, I grew up in it. I, I used to, he used to make me polish his car, his wheels, you know, they were mag wheels. And I used to be out there with my steel wool and my brass so polishing away. <laughs> Uh, the last thing you ate is now the only thing you can eat. How soon do you die? Oh, not that long, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> I haven't had lunch yet and uh, and I had toast for breakfast. So how long can you live on toast for? Yeah, probably not too long. No, no. <laughs> Vegemite and toast. Very Aussie breakfast. That is, it? mate, it is. Uh, what is the most unprofessional thing you've seen someone do? Well, I've seen it on racetracks many times, mate, where people drive you into the fence or try to. It had happened to me uh, at Sydney Motorsport Park only three months ago in the last race as I was trying to pass this guy and uh, I, I could get a run on him out of the last turn because my car was stronger out of the last corner. And as I'd pull out to pass him, he would drive across and across and across and across that if I kept going, I would have hit the fence. That's very unprofessional, right. and I, I let him know it too. <laughs> I bet you did. And I let, I let everyone else in the world know it too. Uh, mate, tell me a time you failed and what you learned from it. Uh, you know, as I keep, go, I keep going back to motorsport because basically that's my whole life. But, um, you know, I've failed in my expectation of myself sometimes, you know, the way I've, uh, you know, made a mistake I mean everybody makes them Alright thanks John for joining us mate it's uh, great listening to your career and hopefully uh, you can continue in the Masters and get a few more wins mate and get that notch up that one more uh, race 1200 races yeah gee can you imagine how many you know like it's a nerve, nervous sort of thing when you're on the starting grid uh, always because of you know, adrenaline and what might or might not happen, whatever, what's, what's your expectation of yourself is. So can you imagine how many butterflies I've had in my stomach with 1,200 races? <laughs> mate, well done. It's been, a, it's been a great, great career, mate, and I've, I've enjoyed watching you over all those years as well, and, you know, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I, I uh, hope to keep doing it for a bit longer yet. Cheers, mate. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have Brad Roby from uh, the Lifeguards over at Maroubra. How are you? Yeah, good, Hop. Yeah, good, yeah, good to talk, mate. Always mate, ready to go. As you know, we, we all have had major incidents and, and resuscitations, you know, no matter where you work as a lifeguard. All professional lifeguards get one at some stage in their career. And so I thought I'd ask you that what was the most influential lifeguard moment for you over there at uh, working for uh, Maroubra? Yeah, mate, look, um, absolutely. Like, you know, I've been lifeguard now for 17 seasons and, um, wow, you know, I've been involved in a lot of major incidents and I'm sure all the lifeguards on the east coast of Australia have been as well, mate. But, um, look, one that sticks out for me would be um, a a recess that I actually um, completed with one of the guys uh, that come over and worked at uh, Bondi, uh, David Skeen, mate. And just to picture it, you know, it was New Year's Day, um, down at Coogee Beach, 30 degrees, 
a four foot nor'east swell, you know, and at Coogee, for anyone that doesn't know, we, we just get large and dangerous shore breaks there, like, you know, really um, renowned for dangerous shore breaks there. And it was funny, me and Skeeny were just, you know, we're there, we're watching the water and, you know, just every shore dump that come through, we'd just hear a big yell. And there was one guy in particular, and, you know, just to picture him, he was like a 150 kilo German backpacker. And, uh, mate, we actually watched him go face first on this four-foot shorey straight into the sandbank, and we just thought we were going to have to keep an eye on this bloke. And literally within seconds, mate, we're just watching him face down in the water. So obviously we radio our colleagues, let them know that we're both going in the water. You know, we knew he was a big boy, and, um, mate, it was a feat in itself. You know, when we got him in the wa- when we got to him in the water, just to get him out of the water was a feat in itself. When we got him um, onto shore, onto the sand, um, mate, straight into it. He, he wasn't breathing, no pulse. He'd obviously had a heart attack and, um, mate, you know, oxy-defib was on him, working away on him there. Um, I think it was about two to three minutes and I think, I believe it was the second shock um, with the defib that, um, mate, got him back. His eyes opened and that was a huge sigh of relief and I remember his eyes opening as the ambulance were walking down the beach and, Mate got him back, and um, yeah, by the time the ambos got got there, he was breathing, conscious, and and still in a critical position uh, condition. But um, yeah, he, he was in a lot better, a lot better way. Um, the most, the reason was such an influential um, moment in my lifeguarding career would, would basically just be because you know I think me and Scandy were only in our second or third season as lifeguards, and it, it was one of those things where I'd been involved in major incidents, but never, you know. Uh, with, without the older guys and stuff like that. So um, it, it was one of those things where when the patient went away, breathing conscious, he actually come down later on to thank us and, and his wife, you know, gave us all a big cuddle and stuff like that. And I think that was just a real proud moment in my lifeguarding career. And it's one I always look back to, even though, you know, I've been involved in so many uh, major incidents. It's one I look back to. And I think that day, really consolidates the like i knew that this was the job for me and um yeah yeah it was yeah something i'd never forget yeah mate it's amazing i know um i've done a fair few myself and uh the satisfaction and the um you know that you get from it it's it's an amazing feeling sometimes it's hard to explain in words but to bring someone from from dead in front of you then back to life it's something that you know it's crazy yeah yeah crazy feeling but yeah unbelievable outcome Mate, well done, and uh, thanks for stopping into the beach shack, and uh, we'll catch you again soon. Yeah, legend, Hoppo. Thanks, mate. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This mailbag is from uh, Jeanette, and she's from London. Where will you go when the lockdown ends overseas? Well, we still haven't had our honeymoon, so I think uh, I'll have to stick to what we said and we're going to go and have our honeymoon in Italy. So I think next time we can travel overseas, I think our destination will be Italy and uh, that will uh, keep Karen happy. So happy wife, happy life. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.